Welcome to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks with expert advice from Jim Lang, Pittsburgh-based CPA, attorney, and retirement and estate planning expert. Jim is also the author of Retire Secure, Pay Taxes Later. To find out more about his book, his practice, Lang Financial Group, and how to secure Jim as a speaker for your next event, visit his website at retiresecure.com. Now, get ready to talk smart money. Hello and welcome to the Lang Money Hour where smart money talks. I'm your host, Nicole DiMartino, and of course I am here with Jim Lang, CPA and attorney and best-selling author of Retire Secure and his new book, The Roth Revolution, Pay Taxes Once and Never Again, which is now available on Amazon.com. Tonight we're getting right into it. We're talking tonight about safe withdrawal rates, and simply put, that means how much can you safely spend out of your retirement plan and not run out of money? This is a question Jim gets all of the time. We felt that it was a good time to talk about this on the show. It's, it's crucial to determine this number correctly because if you don't, you could be in some big trouble. Tonight's show is live. Studio line is 412-333-9385. Again, that number is 412-333-9385, and the lines are open right now. So before I turn it over to Jim, I want to introduce everyone to our guest tonight who is going to help us answer that question, how much you can spend without running out of money. We are very fortunate to have Bill Bingen, certified financial planner and author of Conserving Client Portfolios during retirement with us. He's also written several other financial articles, which have appeared in Financial Planning Magazine, the Journal of Financial Planning, and the Wall Street Journal. Bill received his BS from MIT. He's a CFP, certified financial planner, and he has his master's in financial planning. He's a widely regarded safe withdrawal rate expert, and I believe he's checking in from California. Bill, are you there? I certainly am. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. Um, before uh, before we get into this substance, I just thought I would mention how I how I invited Bill to come on to the radio show. In the 90s, there was an article on the safe withdrawal rates in the Journal of Financial Planning. And I was so impressed with the article that I, I literally tore it out of the magazine and I had kept it for years and referred back to it on numerous occasions. And then when I decided to do a... a uh, um, a show on the safe withdrawal rate. I did an independent examination. I went into Google and, I w- and, and other sources and I was looking for who was writing in this field in an authoritative way. And guess what? It was the same guy, uh, Bill mm-hmm. Bengen. So Bill, I, I very much appreciate you being willing to come on the show tonight. So, so welcome. Glad to be here. All right. Well, why don't we go, why don't we get right into it? And, um, and by the way, I will also say that one of the benefits for me um, in terms of professional development of doing this show is I usually do read the book of the guests, and I, and I, have, I have read your book, and I learned a lot. So, so I, I will <laughs> thank you there. Um, could you explain to our audience the difference between the safe withdrawal rate and the expected rate of return over time? Sure. Uh, I know when I first started doing this research, uh, people used to, uh, to calculate you know, how much they could take out of their uh, retirement portfolios without running out of money. They used to say, well, you know, I can earn 7 or 8% uh, a year, and uh, therefore I should be able to take out 7 or 8% a year, uh, and therefore uh, my portfolio will sustain me for the rest of my life. Well, Unfortunately, there's two big things they forgot. They forgot, first of all, that there is inflation. Their withdrawal is going to have to go on inflation. You have to take that into account. And then you have to take into account that every once in a while we run into a big 
a problem in the stock market we did in 2008 where you have huge negative returns and they can just decimate your portfolio for a period of time. So uh, what I went about to seek was uh, taking all those factors into account, what is the uh, highest rate of return uh, that you could take out safely without running out of money, let's say, for 30 or 35 years, and that's where I came up with that 4 to 4.5% of your portfolio value figure. All right, and can you define safely for our audience? Yeah, well, you know, safe is relative. There are no guarantees in investing or anything else. But essentially, I look back over the last uh, 80 years or so, going back to the Great Depression, and I uh, created imaginary investors, retired at various dates, uh, and uh, gave them their investment returns as they're actually earned at actual uh, rates of uh, inflation. And I determined that uh, the 4 or 4.5% worked in every single case, that all those folks lasted for at least 30 years, their portfolio sustained them. So that's what safe means. All right, so, so basically you're saying uh, a financial reconstruction of going back based on historical data, in every single scenario, you came up with a, let's say, 4 or 4.5% rate, and nobody ran out of money. Is that that's correct? That's correct. That's right. All right. So... Um, in, in your book, you, you call, and I guess what you're, we're talking about um, in ter- is the safe withdrawal rate. Is the safe withdrawal rate the same as safe max? Yes, yes. They're okay. interchangeable, yeah. Okay. All right, so safe max is the name that you give in your book mm-hmm. for what you consider, again, you make a point, no guarantees, you're not guaranteeing the future. Um, so with, with that, let's, let's start for that 30-year period. Um, you said between four and four and a half, four and a half percent, and let's say you have a million dollars, that that would mean that you could either take out forty thousand or forty-five thousand from the portfolio, and have that money last forty years. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, have that money last for thirty years, and you could take out, let's say, if it's forty-four percent, you could take out forty thousand dollars, or if it's four and a half percent, it's forty-five thousand dollars. Do you, want to distinguish between 4 and 4.5%, or do you think that that's a reasonable enough relevant I, I rate? I think the 4.5% uh, is a good figure to use. That's when I updated my research and included you know, other uh, types of investments. It went up to 4.5%. I think that's a reasonable figure to use. All right. Now, now that's an important point because there's a big difference if somebody puts everything in CDs or if they put everything in the stock market or if they do something in between. And I know that you have different um, safe withdrawal recommendations for, for different years, but why don't we just start with the base and talk about the 30-year rate. So okay. w- what, I, I mean, if I, if I put it all in CDs, then inflation and taxes is going to eat me alive and I'm likely to run out of money. Is that right? In which case, 4.5% might be too high. That's correct, particularly in today's environment where our interest rates are artificially low and may remain that way for a long time. Uh, CDs are, are going to be devastating for people. So, so what you're really saying is it's not necessarily safe to have a high percentage of your portfolios in CDs and fixed income if you want to have a higher safe withdrawal rate. That's right. In fact, what I found out, it's uh, dangerous to have a very high percentage of fixed income in your portfolio, and it's equally dangerous to have a high percentage of stocks in your portfolio. You need to have a blend somewhere in between for safety. Uh, all right. And, and if, we, 
if we say that the goal was just to never run out of money for a 30-year period, mm-hmm. what does your um, research indicate the appropriate blend is? I think somewhere uh, between 15 55% whatever, equities, risk assets, whatever you want to call it, uh, and the rest in fixed income. Um, so it might be 55% stocks, 45% uh, uh, bonds and, and money market funds would be a reasonable uh, allocation to have. All right. Well, well, this this is very helpful. Let me ask you another question. You're, you know, the the famous article that you wrote, and I I don't know how many accolades you got from it, but uh, I mean, I thought it was terrific, and I think that, and I and I have seen it, particularly when I was doing the research to find you again. You know, just just a lot of um, references to that article. So obviously, it was it was probably the most important article in its day, and I'm not sure that there's a lot else that is written. Um, but that was before. 2008, and oh, even yes. and even your book is before 2008. That's correct. All right. Well, you're you're a bright guy. You're still in practice. Um, has your opinion changed? And did the downturn make you think, oh, geez, that's maybe I was going a little high, or were you vindicated because other people who were saying higher with with safe withdrawal rates, their clients were running out of money, and yours were okay. Well, I, I think the 4.5% withdrawal rate has stood the test of times since I introduced that, you know, in, in 93 at 4% and raised it a few years later at 4.5%. And I think in this environment, you, you wouldn't want to do any more. I think it would be extremely dangerous. In fact, I'm not even sure if that is going to, quite frankly, you know, stand up if this uh, these market conditions and low interest rates continue, you know, for many more years. We'll have to see. All right. Now... Let, let's take a simple number, which is a million dollars, because that's a nice, easy number to remember. Mm-hmm. And, and let's assume, for discussion's sake, that we're going to go by four and a half percent. So let's say that you you retire on year one, and you can take out forty-five thousand dollars. How much money can you take out on year two? Can you take out forty-five thousand, or can you take out more because there is inflation? Oh, you're exactly right. You you, you want to take inflation. I can't I can't be right if I didn't give you yeah. the answer. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry, Bill. Go ahead. That's quite all right. Uh, the uh, inflation needs to be taken into account. Um, uh, it's crucial that you do that. Uh, what happens is the first year you apply the four and a half percent and come up with that forty five thousand dollar figure, but after the first year you throw away that four and a half percent and never worry about it again. What you do is you take an inflation number, let's say inflation was 10% for the next year. Well, then you increase your withdrawals by 10%. So instead of 45000 you're taking out maybe 49500 the next year. And you just simply do the same each year, just like Social Security. You give yourself a cost of living increase each year with inflation. All right, and that is calculated into that 4.5% rate. So you actually might end up taking more than 4.5% because it's 4.5% of the base year. That's correct. If your portfolio is growing slowly, as it probably is you know, recently, uh, you can actually see your withdrawal rate increase over time. Normally, there are fluctuations during retirement. It could go anywhere. It can go down. It can go up. Um, if you're really unlucky uh, and you retire, let's say, 1966, which is a terrible time to retire because you, you had this huge market decline and high inflation, uh, it's possible, you know, your money would have lasted exactly 30 years and run out with your dying breath 
and you would have been you know, taking out very high percentages you know, toward the end of your life. Uh, but, yeah, the, the, the percentage will fluctuate from year to year. That's why I say don't worry about the percentage after the first year. All right. So, so in effect, it's, it's whatever you took out the first year plus inflation. That's right. Yeah, uh, it's a simple rule. All right. Well, well that, that is pretty simple, but I, I'm kind of a conservative guy, and particularly when it comes to clients running out of money. So let's take two examples. One, a guy comes to you in early 2008, he has a million dollars, and you say, okay, you can take out, you know, 4.5%. So he takes out $45,000, and, and let's say using your pattern, he continues that, taking out $45,000 plus inflation. All right, now, six months later, and let's just say it's roughly half bonds and half stocks, uh, the stock portfolio of of his um, the stock portion of his portfolio goes down by say forty percent. So now his whole portfolio is down twenty percent. Are you going to go back and readjust every year, or are you going to say, "Hey, that was already built in with our initial um, value of four and a half percent"? You know, that's a judgment call. Um... And I think it depends upon how the, it's my opinion, in my, my, my practice, I, I look at how the client views that. If the client is nervous about the situation, I would recommend that they cut back their withdrawals, even if the rules say we, we're okay. Because no one really knows what's going to happen in the future. You know, in the past, markets have made, you know, big declines and they've been followed by very big recoveries so that people were able to keep that 4.5% through because eventually their, you know, their portfolios regained value. But no one knows for sure what's going to happen in the future. So if a client really feels uncomfortable, there's no reason they have to feel trapped in a box. Just redu- re- reduce withdrawals temporarily or permanently uh, to bring them to their comfort level so they can sleep at night. Well, well I guess my question is, is, are we safe just taking the number that we spent last year and continuing that on for inflation, or is it really safe to say, "Hey, I'm going to reevaluate each year," and if it is, let's say, better to reevaluate each year, um, could we possibly come up to a conclusion that it's more than four and a half percent? Because if we are reevaluating, then perhaps we don't have the danger of spending too much. You could reevaluate every year. I think you're you're probably better off doing it on a longer time frame, maybe three to five years. Otherwise, you could get whipsawed by market fluctuations, you know. But I think it it does make sense to look at your withdrawal plan every so often, and maybe make a mid-course correction, like you're suggesting, saying, "Well, you know, we're doing extremely well with our investments. Let's take more out than we had intended, because it looks like we're going to be okay." Or conversely, say, uh, you know. Portfolio is doing terribly. Let's cut back. You know. All right. Well, I, I, I'm. By the way, I'm finding this very helpful. And, and for whatever it's worth, when I do um, financial reviews with clients, one of the probably one of the most important things I do is is I look to see how much I think they can f- safely spend. And interestingly enough. Uh, you actually have a chart in your book talking about the different different spending withdrawal rates based on different life expectancy rates. Mm-hmm. And I happen to be using that exact same source. So I, I thought okay. that that was kind of interesting, um, that, that independently we came to what we thought was the right source, unless 
and I, the, by the way, the people who I use didn't give you credit um, <laughs> unless you're the one who came up with it, and I'm just following what somebody said that, that you said. Um, but, any, but anyway, um, a lot of people say, well, that's great if you have a 30-year life expectancy, but you know, these days you have a lot of people who are a little bit nervous, or maybe they just like to work. I was with with a physician today and he just loves working and I've, I have a lot of college professors as clients and a lot of those guys keep working you know well into their 70s and sometimes 80s and I have uh, a lot of engineers who if, if conditions allow they they like going to work and they work um, longer so that rather than retiring at 60 or even 65 when using maybe a 30-year life expectancy would be reasonable um, they're retiring at maybe 75 or 80. And let's say in that case, if you're going to restrict an 80-year-old, and let's assume that they're married and that their spouse is their same age, if you're going to restrict an 80-year-old to a 4.5% withdrawal rate, you're really, I think, potentially um, <coughs> restricting what they could safely spend. So what you have done is you have calculated different withdrawal rates for different life expectancies and I wonder if you could um, tell our listeners a, a little bit about how that works why you did that and if that those results have been vindicated over time yeah I it's an excellent point you make uh, persons who have shorter life expectancies uh, can be more aggressive in their withdrawals uh, because uh, it's less likely that a major stock market downturn is going to affect them. If they're only, you know, if they're looking to withdraw over 30 years, they've got to be very careful. But if it's only 10 or 15 years, well, uh, my table indicates that a person with a 15-year life expectancy could go over 6%. Uh, yeah, yeah, in fact, on, yeah, and, and by the way, for whatever it's worth, I have your book in front of me, and you actually have 6.3% mm -hmm. um, with a total equity allocation of 30%. That's right. You want to get more conservative uh, with that uh, as you age and then have a shorter expectancy. And then for a 10-year life expectancy, um, and, and, and by the way, for listeners, uh, there are sometimes some great times to take notes. This is, this is one of them. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm actually going to go through from 10 to 30 years because I think that this is such valuable information. Um, for 10 years... You, you, and the way you call it is peak safe max with a total equity allocation of 40%. You say people could spend up to 8.9% of their portfolio. That's right. All right, and that, that still hasn't changed. Is that correct? Yeah, as far as that's as valid as the 4.5% is. Okay. For the 30-year. All right, and then for 15 years, you come up with 6.3% mm -hmm. with a 30% allocation. For a 20-year period, you come up with 5.2%. And that's a, with a 30% allocation in stocks. With a 25-year life expectancy, you're at 4.7% with a 45% allocation in stocks. For 30 years, you're, you're actually at 4.4%, um, which is you know, pretty close to what you said before, which is 4.5%, mm -hmm. and you say a 50% allocation. So I think that that is very helpful, and I, I use that table. I will tell you, I use that table if not every day, at least it's pretty close to it. And I think it's just so important because we have a lot of older clients and they have, I call, whether you call it depression era mentality 
or their, their um, unwillingness to spend a lot of money, they um, are concerned about running out of money, and many times they are spending well less than their safe withdrawal rates. And one of the reasons, one of the things that I do is I try to show them, hey, you might be able to spend a little bit more money. Not that they necessarily do, but using that safe withdrawal rate. So I, I think that that is very, very valuable. Great. We're going to take a quick break right now. Um, we are here with Bill Bengen, and he is the author of Conserving Client Portfolios During Retirement. We're talking about safe withdrawal rates. And as a quick reminder, we are live, so if you have a question or a comment for Bill or Jim, please give us a call, 412-333-9385. You're listening to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQV AM 1410. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQV AM 1410. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, 412-521-2732. Let's talk more smart money. Welcome back to the Lang Money Hour. This is Nicole DiMartino, and this evening I'm here, of course, with Jim Lang, and our guest tonight calling in from California is Bill Bengen. He is the author of Conserving Client Portfolios During Retirement, and uh, we're talking safe withdrawal rates. Before we get back to it, I do see that we have a question, though, all the way from Washington State on, on the West Coast. All, all right, and, and by, by the way, I will remind our listeners that um, we probably have as many, or I think we this year we have had more questions from out of state than mm -hmm. in state, and that Absolutely. is be that is because KQV streams, mm -hmm. and we have listeners all over the country, and they listen on the internet. And it, by the way, even if you're local, um, sometimes the signal is is a tiny bit mu muffled, maybe sometimes more than a tiny bit, and you might be better off listening at kqv.com. But anyway, why don't we why don't, why don't we take the the caller from Washington, Carl? Yes. Are you there? Yes, I am. Alrighty. What's your question for Jim and Bill? Oh, I'm enjoying the show. Oh, and I good. wonder if Bill could please comment on the effect of mutual fund and advisor fees on the safe withdrawal rate. And I'll take my answer off the, off the air. Um, as, as far as mutual funds go, uh, in my research, I assume that the investor was using index funds, which had extremely low fees, so that the mutual fund fees didn't enter in to my uh, calculation withdrawal rates, uh, they weren't affected by. With respect to advisor, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go as ahead. As far as advisor fees, uh, that should be built into the client's budget for retirement uh, as an expense, uh, and should not be forgotten. Because uh, I don't think the advisor wants to go unpaid necessarily <laughs> if they're giving sound advice. So definitely, you, you want to make sure the client has included those fees in their budget. Uh, and is part of that 4.5% withdrawal. All right. I, and, and for whatever it's worth, um, some of the money managers that I work with, and I, and I guess I have to be careful about what I'm going to say, but I, I would say that it would be their hope um, that their performance would, um, would cover the fees. But, um, but all right, why, why don't we go to the, the in, in other words, that, that you could half percent because they would be their hope would be that their performance would be four and a half percent um half or or better or the market or better after their fee but that's right and, and you have to remember the four and a half percent is how much you're withdrawing 
people also have other sources of income during retirement, Social Security, mm -hmm. pension plans, and so forth, you know, mm -hmm. uh, which can be used to pay expenses. So uh, you have to look at the broader picture as well. All right. Well, let's, let's, let's get into the nitty-gritty a little bit, Bill, because cause you cover this. And, and, and by the way, I'm, I'm so glad to have you on because and I don't want to mention the names of certain books because I don't want to say anything bad about anybody. But I will just tell you that there's a whole bunch of num of of books out there on the safe withdrawal rate, and they have not done the research that Bill has done, and they don't have the depth of insight, and you know they they didn't have the education and and frankly the quantitative skills that that Bill brings to the table. So so let's let's use some of those quantitative skills, Bill. Um, let's distinguish between an all IRA portfolio. I have I have a lot of clients that have mainly IRAs. So, for example, college professors, engineers, mid-level managers, people who had, you know, let's say they were they, they started out with their careers 30, 40 years ago. Um, maybe they were married and, and they and their spouse were pretty much broke at the time. And, you know, they, they bought a house on credit, so they, they had a house payment. And they then they had kids, and then they had braces expenses, and then they had college expenses, and then they had the car payments and everything else. And it was very hard for them to accumulate a lot of money, but they were pretty prudent souls, and they put money into their retirement plan and the university or their company or Westinghouse or wherever they worked also put in a portion. So now let's say that they are at or near retirement, and maybe they have $1 million or $2 million or a little less or a little bit more. Virtually all that money is in an IRA or a 401k or a 403b or a SEP or a KEO or, or what is important about that money is that they have not yet paid tax on it. So how would you advise somebody that instead of having a million dollars of what I would call after-tax dollars, money that they have already paid tax on, how would you change the advice if they have the million dollars in the IRA? Okay, fair question. Actually, my research, that 4.5% figure, is uh, intended to apply to tax-deferred accounts like IRAs. Uh, if you're uh, examining a taxable account, the withdrawals would actually be about 10% less than that. Wait, wait, all right, well, ha hang on a second. Let's, let's, let's make sure that we understand this. So let's, let's again use a million dollars because it's a nice, easy number. Okay. All right, so somebody can take out a... Um, $45,000, but if, if, the, if the source of the money was all IRA, that $45,000 is going to be taxable. And, and let, let's say, say for discussion's sake, uh, to keep it simple, the tax on that is, say, uh, $10,000. So they have $35,000 left. Um, is, can they spend $35,000 or can they spend $45,000 and take out more and pay taxes on that. The uh, the total that would be available to them for withdrawal during that year would be forty five thousand, and they must not forget the fact that they have to pay taxes. The taxes should be considered as a budgeted expense for them, just like the advisor fees. Okay. So, so they're netting out thirty five thousand. They'll have left for discretionary expenses that year. Right. Right. And and by the way, that's the way I do it too. Is I you know I tell people okay you know, if we're going to use 4% or if they're older, you know, a higher percentage, that's fine, but you're going to have to pay taxes from that money. Correct. All right. All right. Now, what if that money was outside the IRA? Could, couldn't, couldn't you just say, well, then there isn't any taxes, so they could spend the whole 45000 Or um, why, why did you say that you could take out 10% less? 
Uh, the reason is that uh, the taxable portfolio is uh, soon to be paying taxes on uh, all of its investment gains over time. So it's going to grow at a slower rate than the IRA account. So if you have a taxable account, you had capital gains, you sold something, or else you had uh, dividends, and you, you paid income taxes on those you, as you went. Uh, therefore, the taxable account is smaller, uh, but because, let's say, you, you take out 4% instead of 45 roughly. You, take out, you can only take out 40000 but then that money you can spend freely without any further taxes because taxes have already been paid over the years on that. All right, so your rule of thumb then is take whatever number that you had before, which was, let's say, 4.5% or the higher numbers when we were talking about um, a, 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 long, a, a reduced life expectancy, and then subtract 10% of that, and then you could spend that money. Is that if right? If you were drawing from a taxable account, that's right. Right. All right. But, but by the way, it's great when you get a tough question, by the way, and instead of getting mumbo-jumbo, you get you get a great answer. That You don't often get that with a lot of, well, I better watch myself here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all righty. Now, let's assume for discussion's sake that somebody has a, they have a pension plan. And let's just say for discussion's sake, it's... Uh, $5,000 a month, all right? But what is unique about it is that, or it's not so unique anymore, it's actually, it's kind of standard, is the, the amount of the pension is fixed. In other words, it's not going to be like our legislators that get a nice raise every time there's inflation or every time they have a bill, but, or, um, but rather than it is let's say $60,000 a year, and maybe it's $60,000 today, and maybe if they live 30 years, it's still 60000 but if inflation is at 3%, maybe that 60000 is only worth 15000 All right, so we have, let's call it an ever-decreasing purchasing power from their pension. And by the way, I would say the same thing with Social Security, the theoretical Theoretically, Social Security may have some cost of increase, cost of living increase. How would you then recommend somebody handle the safe withdrawal issue in that case? And by the way, if you can get this one, that's really good because I don't know the answer. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's a, a question I've explored in great detail. It's a very important point because many people find themselves in that situation where they have a fixed pension and they've got a sum of money in addition that they're withdrawing from. And the answer is that uh, the 4.5% rate almost certainly is going to have to be decreased substantially, and you almost have to go through the calculations using software to do it. The reason is that uh, each year you can take out from your portfolio and give yourself a cost of living adjustment, but you're not going to get that out of your pension plan. So if your overall spending is going to go up with inflation, your portfolio now has to do double duty. It has to give itself a cost of living increase, and it now also gives you the, the money you're drawing from your pension plan at cost of living increase. So that as a result, I've done calculations for clients where instead of 4.5% the first year, they had to take out 3.5% or 3% or even 2.8% uh, so that their money would last. And that's all because they've got to be their greatest enemy you know, during a retiree is, is inflation. They have to make provisions for that. And the pension plan is, is kind of like an anchor you know, during retirement because it doesn't do anything with respect to inflation for Oh, you. Bill, you're killing me. I thought you were going to give me an easy answer because I've always said, well, 
I, I've kind of included a, a fudge factor, if you will, and lowered it. Okay. All right, so now you're telling me that, that my instinct is right. I, the, the idea of using a fudge factor is accurate. Now you're telling me what I sometimes tell people when I, you know, I go around the country doing Roth IRA conversion workshops, and they say, and I say, you know, to determine the optimal amount to, of the Roth IRA conversion, you actually have to run the numbers and you have to run the projections, and we have a combination of Roth IRA conversion software. By the way, also 1040 software, we, with which we think is intricate um, to the calculation. And then we interpolate and work back and forth. And the truth is, there is no easy one quick answer. So you said you have to use the software. Um, and I know we have a lot of financial advisors. Is there a particular program that you, rec that you can recommend? Because I would love to know how to do that. Sure. I use, uh, there are several excellent financial planning software packages on the market. I happen to use MoneyGuide Pro because it's uh, web-based, so I can share it with my clients. When I prepare a plan for them, they can see the plan on their own home computer. All right. All right. Is that, is that available free for our listeners, or is that a financial? That's something, no, unfortunately, you have to pay uh, a fee, an annual fee for. Okay. It's it, pretty significant, you know. All right. And, and, and out of curiosity, because I know we have a lot of financial advisors sure. um, listening, how, how much is that a year? Roughly? I think I'm paying somewhere in the range of uh, $1,100 a year for that. All right. Well, that, 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 that doesn't sound too bad to me. Because I will tell, and, and I, I su assume it does other things too, but but I will tell you that that to me is a really tough issue. And the other thing that I don't know how to do, and I don't know if there's any software in the world that could tell us this, is how to do that calculation if somebody doesn't have a pension, but if somebody um, has Social Security. In other words, can we count on a cost of living raise for Social Security? I don't think we can, but but I don't have any you know, excellent substantive reasoning or sources that would say that. In other words, if you have doubts about the, uh, the future uh, cost of living adjustments from Social Security, right? That that is really, you know, that, right, that depends upon your interpretation of what's going to happen. All right, so, so that, that that has to be a true fudge factor. Yeah, there's no yeah. there's no so. All right, now what about this? <laughs> By the way, I I, I love getting. I love when there's quantitative people that can answer questions because a lot of times I have engineers and other quantitative types and they come in and they answer, they ask all the questions that they're not used to getting an answer for. And then when they get an answer, they're pretty surprised. So, so I like this and I'm, yeah, I, you're doing great. You really are. Thank you. Um, I appreciate this, Bill. All right. So what do you do now if you have a one life pension? So you have somebody who is married and for some reason or, or another, they either didn't do a two-life pension, which is what I typically recommend, or it some in some variations, although not the ones I found, by the way. I find that it usually is cheaper to take a two-life pension. If you do a one-life pension, then you do a life insurance policy to cover the surviving spouse in the event that the person who took the pension dies. So that's why I like I typically my my starting assumption is two-life. But a lot of times people come to me after that decision has been made. So they might come to me with a one-life pension and and no life insurance. How, how, would, you, how would you cover that um, excuse me, possibility? That's something where you're going to have to go to the software again and, and run the numbers on it. There's no simple answer to that. It depends upon, you know... Uh, uh, how, how much, how long they expect to live, and I think you want to look at different contingencies. If they, you know, they die a lot sooner than they thought, 
they would, uh, then we want to be more conservative with the withdrawals to account for that. You know, that that's a complex issue. Yeah, because see, see, this is this is what happens in real life. It's, you know, I'd love to say, okay, you have a million dollars. Um, you know, you're gonna, you you told me your your mom lived till eighty, and but you're feeling pretty healthy and. And you want to say, let's, well, and I always, by the way, what I always do, I don't know what you do, is I always add some years to what my clients tell me. So it's kind of an interesting thing. I say, well, how long do you think you're going to live? And, you know, there's a couple jokes, and, and then, then they start telling me about, well, you know, my mom, you know, died when she was, you know, 82, and my dad died when he was 77, but he used to smoke cigarettes or but, you know, he died of heart failure that, that now could easily be corrected um, or, or something like that. But what I will typically do is whatever they tell me, I typically add a few years because I think that the idea here is to be conservative, not to be aggressive, because I don't want to say, oops, I guess we miscalculated. I'm really sorry that you're 87 years old and you don't have any money. Yeah, I, I, really, <laughs> endorse, I really endorse what you're saying there. I, you know, when I run... Uh, those money guide pro projections for my clients the first time i take them out to age 105 and i usually get giggles from people because mm-hmm. they can't envision themselves living tonight to 105 but i've been in practice over 20 years and i had four clients with me who were in their 70s mid 70s time i started and they're in their mid 90s in good health and good good mind and they could easily live to 105 and they're very glad that we took the the planning out that far so i i think it's good to have a margin of error in these these matters all right. All right. We're going to take one last break. Uh, you are listening to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. The Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks, featuring the expert advice of Pittsburgh-based CPA attorney Jim Lang. More coming up on KQVAM fourteen ten. The Lang Money Hour continues on KQVAM fourteen ten. For all of your financial needs, turn to Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill. Let's talk more smart money. Welcome back to the Lang Money Hour. We are here. We have about 12 minutes left in the show. Uh, Jim, I think you were writing some things down. You have a couple more questions for Bill. Oh, (laughs) yeah. I could go on for hours, but um, I don't know. Bill, aren't you glad this is just an hour? (laughs) I'm enjoying this enormously. Good, good, good. Well, well, thanks. You're 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 giving us some, some great information. Um, and, and frankly, I'm, I'm, giving, I'm throwing out some of the toughest questions that I, that I come across. Um, there's another factor that I want to know if you take into account in your practice, which I do in mine. Let's assume for discussion's sake that your analysis is exactly right. You know, the, the market goes down at the worst time. You calculated it, at, it out. The client lives exactly as long as you had thought. He spends his last dollar and dies. So you got it perfect. But now they have a $500,000 house. Let's say the client said, hey, I love my kids and, you know, I, whatever I can do to help my kids out when I'm gone, that's great. And if, if I make a Roth IRA conversion, as long as it's not costing me purchasing power, if my kids can be a h- couple hundred thousand dollars or more better off, that's great. But I died with an extra $500,000 that I never spent. It seems to me that maybe I could have got a reverse mortgage on it. Maybe at some point I could have sold it. So going into that 30-year period, let's assume that you have a paid-up house, and let's just use 500000 because it's a nice, easy number. 
can you take into account the equity of your home in determining how much money you can spend? Theoretically, I guess you could. I haven't explored that. It depends upon, you know, the willingness of the client to consider that concept. Some people uh, don't want to, you know, touch the equity in their home. <laughs> Others uh, want to be more aggressive with it. Um, I think it's a matter of the client's preference, you know, in that regard. Well, I, w I would say most clients would prefer not to, but well, I'll, 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 I'll quote Jonathan Clemens on this because Jonathan Clemens of the Wall Street, or formerly of the Wall Street Journal, he's no longer there, but he and I did a column on this issue, and what he said, uh, Bill, is that you could take 60% of the equity in your home and consider that as part of the base of the safe withdrawal rate on the theory that if it ever came down to it, you could either mortgage your home, um, get a reverse mortgage, and I like the concept of a reverse mortgage. I might not like the fees, but I like the concept of it where you, in effect, can spend some of the equity in your home. Um, or, for that matter, if it really came down to it, you could sell it. So what Jonathan says is, but he, but he says, hey, you can't take 100% because mm -hmm. the value of the home could go down, um, or you might okay. have to pay some fees, etc. Um, I would say that a lot of clients might not feel comfortable with it. The way I do it is I present it, and then I let the client decide themselves. On the other hand, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the, an example of one case where it worked out really well. I had a client, and they, uh, and they, ba they had both most of their money in their IRA, and they basically needed um, you know, the full safe withdrawal rate from their IRA. And their particular, they happened to be Orthodox Jews, and their their most important thing for them during their lifetime was that their grandchildren be educated at the yeshiva. And even though the tuition wasn't terribly expensive, there was, there was tuition. And what, they, what their plan for that was, was to um, cash in more of their IRA, pay the income taxes on it, and get the net of that, and use that to pay for their, their grandchildren's um, uh, tuition. And I hated the idea that they were prematurely taxing their IRA, taking out more than they really should. So we end, we actually ended up doing, you know, I'm kind of a cheapskate, so rather than doing a traditional reverse mortgage, and that, that might be a very good solution for a lot of people, but what we ended up doing is we basically did a series of um, home equity um, borrowings to pay that tuition. Now, yes, they will likely, almost inevitably, die in debt, um, but what will happen is, their, in their case, it was a condominium. The condominium will likely be sold at after they're both gone, and then the proceeds can pay off the mortgage, and anything left over can go to their children or grandchildren, but in the meantime, they had that additional money that they could use. Now, they happen to, to choose to spend it to pay tuition for yeshiva other people obviously will have different uses for the money but i don't know if you consider that a legitimate way of doing things or not i, I think that's an intriguing and clever idea uh in southern california of course we have no home equity left <laughs> <laughs> no one in southern california and no, i'm just kidding we but there's a tremendous number of foreclosures here i think it's a concept that's worth looking at i mean you have that value i think what 
what I do in my practice, I tell my clients, look, we've made these assumptions, a lot of assumptions, okay? In case we're wrong, you live a lot longer or the market's a lot worse, you have your home here as a last resort, and we can do some of the things you've been talking about. You know, so we kind of like keep the home in reserve. But I don't see why you couldn't do explicit calculations with it, like you're suggesting. I think that's an interesting idea. Yeah, I, I, I mean, the way I kind of use it is, I guess it's a little bit of a reserve, um, but also sometimes not being afraid of doing it. And, and by the way, on, on that particular issue, Jonathan Clemens and I came to the conclusion that doing a um, kind of a, a running and ever ever increasing home equity loan um, made more sense than doing a reverse mortgage. Now, obviously, a lot of the reverse, a lot of the mortgage brokers are screaming bloody murder right now, and I'm sure that in many cases a, a traditional reverse mortgage would work. Um, my problem, by the way, with a traditional mortgage. So let's say somebody says, okay, my house is worth five, $500,000. Um, let's assume that the bank would give them a, a traditional mortgage of, say, $300,000. Um, my issue then is they don't need the $300,000 today, and then if they invest it hoping to do well, to me that's kind of like an arbitrage situation where you borrow, ad admittedly, at today's low rates, which are as low as I've ever seen them, you borrow the money, and you hope to do better in your investments. To me, that's a little bit too risky. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that one. Yeah, I, I would concur with your, with your take on that. All righty. Now, now let's get into this. This is an area where um, your book and I have given different advice. And um, so we'll, we'll get to this. Now, this is what I hear a lot. So let's say that people retire, they're 65 years old, um, and they are, let's assume, in both, both in good health, and they say, hey, you know something? I look at my parents, and my parents, you know, after they reached their, their mid-80s or even earlier, they had a real hard time getting around. You know, dad got sick, and, and mom had to spend a lot of time taking care of them, and even if they wanted to spend more money, um, they really couldn't because they were just too old to travel. I'm really, I'm feeling pretty good right now. I'm, I'm healthy. Uh, Europe beckons. I want to go to the islands. I want to have some fun while I'm still healthy, and I can still do that. Can I take out a little bit more? And I, you know, again, that was one of those fudge factors that I never knew exactly how to quantify, but that seemed to me a little bit okay. And then I read your book, and you say, no, 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 <laughs> you can't do that. So, so why, don't, why, why don't you kill some of the vacation dreams of some <laughs> of our listeners <laughs> and, and talk about whether you think it's legitimate to have a fudge factor for taking out a little bit more early or whether sure. that is not a responsible thing to do. I'm, I'm going to have to read my book again. I didn't know I said no. But <laughs> well, I, well, I, well, you didn't say no, but, but specifically what you said was, you you kind of you <laughs> it's it's great quoting you to you isn't it <laughs> um, <laughs> you, you, you said there were basically three phases of retirement the uh, let's oh call yeah. it the young healthy phase and then the the last phase which is you know older maybe nursing home or or personal care etc and then the one in between and then you class you quoted a classic study and then you kind of amended it but i believe you came to the conclusion that because sometimes 
you had to consider long-term care or additional expenses in the last stage, you couldn't really live it up in the first of those three stages. I think you have to be really careful uh, about what you do in the early years of retirement because they set this, the pattern for the, the latter stage of retirement. And if you consume too much capital early in retirement, uh, you know, you may have to live as a pauper later on, you know, particularly if the market, you know, turns down on you. Um, the early years of retirement, the compounding, as you know, in the early years of any investment cycle are the most important because the, that money will compound for the longest. So if you take that early money and use it early, you have, may have to cut back a lot more than you expected. In other words, you might have to go from, you know, five and let's say you go to five and a half percent. Say I'm going to spend a five and a half. After 10 years, you may have to cut back to three and a half or something really drastic, and you have to decide whether you can actually make that kind of a lifestyle change. Uh, and some people can, and that's fine. I'll, I'll bet all the travel agents and hotels are wincing right now. They don't, they don't want to hear this. <laughs> but but I, I think is your point that um, you, you, you said in your book that it, it was your experience that a lot of your older clients um, weren't able to had had higher expenses. By the way, you have about thirty seconds to answer. <laughs> sure. um, so so if you if you could do that, That's I right. would appreciate it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. Generally, uh, you'd be surprised at how uh, some people think expenses will drop later in retirement because of lack of travel. Not true. You have increased medical expenses, living expenses, perhaps you're moving into retirement community. Maybe you want to be gifting to your children. Uh, that should be considered an expense. Don't assume that your expenses later in life are going to drop off a cliff and be much higher than you think. Alrighty, Bill, we're going to close the show now. Thank you so much. I could Jim's smiling here. I know he's had a good time this evening. We hope you did too. Thank you for listening to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Thanks for listening to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Portions of the audio that you just heard will be posted online at retiresecure.com. You can also find a list of upcoming events and topics at retiresecure.com. To seek Jim's advice personally or to speak to a member of his dedicated staff at Lang Financial Group in Squirrel Hill, call 412-521-2732. Join us again in two weeks when we talk more smart money.